Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Tom Perry. Tom is the World Bank's team leader for Pacific Communications, and we met back in 2015 when I was also working for the World Bank. Tom has over 10 years' experience telling stories from across East Asia and the Pacific Islands, including more than three years in the Solomon Islands as part of Australia's peacekeeping and development operation, which would be known to most of us as Ramsey. Tom has also worked for Care International, which led him to South Sudan, as well as to Vanuatu immediately after Cyclone Pam. In addition to being a communications wizard, Tom is an outstanding photographer and lives in Sydney with his wife and daughter. Tom, thank you for being here. Thanks, Rachel. What a, what a, um, a sweet intro. That's very nice. Thanks. <laughs> Alrighty, so let's start with VR. So virtual reality is an area that really interests me and I'm seeing it and hearing about it so much more in the sector at the moment. So why do you think it's become such a popular tool in development? And how did you use it as a storytelling tool in Fiji? Yeah, VR is something that um, I I found myself kind of thrown into. Um, and, and I have to say I, from the outset that I'm a real skeptic about a technology, but also kind of gimmicks and toys. And so I was very skeptical when I got asked to work in this space um, about it, but I'm a, I'm a total convert now. And, and the reason for it being so valuable, I think, as a tool for development organizations is um, there's both, I think, practical reasons for that, which is the fact that you can use VR to, to take someone to another place without the actual logistics of putting them on a plane and dealing in particular um, when you're dealing with with particularly challenging places that you're working in um, you can you know you're dealing with logistics and security and and all of that um, and VR is very effective at sort of transporting someone to another place without all of that and obviously that that also has budget implications of course but there's also the the element that it's such an immersive medium. I mean, the 360 storytelling experiences, obviously, for, for those who have used uh, a headset, an actual kind of VR headset, um, it's a, it's an incredibly immersive and very personal experience. So, you, you it's not like watching content on a phone or, or on a, even on a screen. It's very much a very personal, you kind of dropped somewhere and, and it's all around you. Um, and you know, and and I think for those who've kind of experienced a, a visit, um, and when I say visit, like it's a very common thing in the aid and development kind of space where you know important people and and big donors are often taken to meet communities, and and it's a very, in my opinion, that's a very contrived experience, and it's a very um, there's a real nasty 
power dynamic to that if i if i can be so really frank about it which i don't i I feel really uncomfortable about um and so one of the things about vr is that it's a very personal experience it's often just some an individual one person telling their story and showing you around their place and and the film that really started the the kind of the wave of um of you VR euphoria within the 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 development aid space is a film called Clouds of a Cedra, and it's a very simple film. It's just a, about a little girl called Cedra, who's showing you as the kind of audience or the the viewer um, around Zatari camp in in Jordan, um, and it's a very effective experience because it's just her kind of showing you her day and how she spends her time. And as Zatari is, a, I should clarify she's a a syrian refugee child and and it's a very powerful experience and there's nothing particularly technically profound about it but it's a very special experience yeah and when when you juxtapose that with as you said the contrived experience of delegations where you're mm. going to morning tea after morning tea and sort of seeing a very over sanitized view of a country when you juxtapose that with a, a refugee camp the the view of a child in a refugee camp it's quite amazing yeah. yeah and and i guess coming back to your question rachel about how we used it we in fiji um so the context of of us working in fiji on this was um was that uh for those who are kind of aware of the climate change kind of politics and all of that so fiji um was holding or still holds the presidency of the cop which is the big un climate change conference um and they've been holding it for the last 12 months and um but the 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 unique thing about this year with fiji being the president of cop 23 was that the event wasn't actually held in fiji so the event was held in bonn in germany um and that for me was a real immediate kind of spark of well how can we bring fiji to to germany in the middle of winter you know and um and the thing about the film that we made um was 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 it was very focused on adaptation and climate adaptation which was as opposed to the issue of mitigation um so really adaptation how can we support countries where climate change is already impacting them as opposed to encourage countries to reduce their emissions really how can we encourage um countries to to invest in adaptation projects in in countries like fiji and so the film takes viewers to a couple of different communities in fiji and it 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 shows them around and and there's four characters that really show you around their lives and how climate change is affecting them um and it was it was a an amazing experience i got i got to take it to germany um as part of the the fijian pavilion and and we we had some pretty kind of influential people um Watching the film, Mike Bloomberg, who's now the the UN's special envoy for climate change, um, among many things, um, he, you know, he watches he he's watching this film, and and it's incredibly, you know, it's it's one of those things when you when you when someone watches VR content, as long as the content hopefully is good, um, you know, that it's a very personal experience. And when he took off his headset, it was a very he went very quiet. Um, and this is a guy who's got like 20 minders with him all day, every day, right? And he just, he kind of, you could see that he didn't want to be interrupted after the film. He wanted to kind of exist in that space for a bit longer. And um, yeah, it's very effective. Wow. That's really powerful. What mm. other reaction did you have from delegates? 
Um, most of them, uh, well, it was a real mix. I mean, emotionally, it was a real, it was a real mix. I and mean, we had people taking off the headset and being very angry. Um, not, not so much at the film, unfortunately, <laughs> but more about the fact that this is that what the stories that they were hearing are real and not kind of future stories that these are, these are, these are climate change impacts now. Um, we had a lot of people in tears, which was, which was very powerful to see. And, and, um, it's, it's a fine line as a kind of, if I wear my producer's hat, um, it's a fine line between with the ethics of this, of, of pushing those messages too forcefully and, but still making sure that there is an emotional connection to the people that, they're meeting and and I, and I guess coming back to your original question Rachel it's it's such a an effective medium you don't need to use kind of too many directorial tricks or you don't need to play at the emotions too much when you're in such a rich environment and rich dynamic experience like VR um mm-hmm. so which is why it's such a powerful tool for organizations in the aid space but it is also considerably more expensive to produce this stuff so they need you need to you know VR is absolutely not a silver bullet for communications it's not um and if and if anyone says oh well, great well let's make a, a VR film unless they have a clear vision as to what the purpose is for that then I think they're probably kidding themselves a little, but it's it's definitely there's a real energy around this at the moment, and a lot of different organisations um, are investing in this because they've seen the impact that it's having. Mm. When you talk about it being expensive, it, ma- it makes me think there's sort of a power dynamic at play here, a little bit. Sort of, not many organisations can afford to make mm. a quality VR film in the same way that the world bank can so how how do you mm. overcome that that power imbalance um it's a it's a good question i mean the, there's a couple of answers to that the first is that the technology is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper um so to produce good vr content five years ago even was very experimental i mean when we first made our first one it was we literally for those who know the gopro cameras um they're very wide angled cameras so we had literally strapped six gopro cameras to the end of a tripod really and it was all very kind of haphazard and then it it requires the the post-production work but you know there are 360 cameras that you can buy off the shelf which are very effective now and they're only a couple of hundred dollars um but one of the one of the great initiatives that um, I have to say, to their credit, and and a lot of people um, bag Facebook for good reasons, but um, Facebook has a pretty cool initiative called um, VR for Good, which is basically they pair. So if the the company that Facebook owns called Oculus, which is kind of the the big name in VR, they pair well known sort of VR filmmakers with charities, um, and those filmmakers are then basically matched up to. Um, to help that charity make a film. And, and I know there's a number of Australian-based charities or Australian, at least charities based in Australia that have already gone through that program. I know Care, who I used to work for, have gone through that program and they made a really beautiful film um, in Malawi, I think, a couple of years ago. You know, there, there's definitely um, – it doesn't – absolutely point taken around, around the expense, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, it, it can definitely be done very effectively and, and you know – if anyone has a, um, a phone, they can af- effectively do it using panoramic shots as well for Facebook. Yeah, so. that organisation sounds really interesting. That that's pairing filmmakers with charities, mm. and we'll 
we'll put a link to that in our show notes today. There was a moment, I think it was back in 2016, perhaps, we had a World Bank conference in Terrigal, a conference or a team, a team meeting or I'm not sure what you call those. Um, and I remember we had Amanda Donegi come to speak to us and she's the yep. editor of Stella magazine. And she yep. made a statement and it's funny, you have those statements that sort of stick with you years later and you just reminded me of it. She made a statement that said, we need to create platforms to allow people to tell their own stories. Mm. And I really loved that. And I think that that is exactly what you do in a lot of ways. And <laughs> the Pacifica Film Festival would be another example of that. Um, can you can you talk a bit about that film festival and how it how it gives people a platform to tell their own story? Yeah, um, so the Pacifica Film Festival um, is is on around Australia in the next couple of weeks um, in September. So whenever you're listening to this, September <laughs> 2018. Um, uh, so it's a film festival that happens once a year in Australia. Um, that's really run by. Uh, a dedicated group um, here, mostly based out of Sydney, but it travels around around Australia. So I know this year it's in um, in Brisbane, Sydney, and Canberra, um, and there are other event, similar events I think in in Melbourne, um, and obviously the the significant diaspora in in Auckland as well. I think there are separate, similar events, but the Pacifica Film Festival really is focused on. Um, supporting Pacific filmmakers um, to to show their work, and there are big, there are kind of bigger budget productions in the film festival, um, but there are also some really small, um, very independent filmmakers who are having their work shown. And, and I know in the last couple of days that they kind of also have workshops for young filmmakers, young Pacific filmmakers to tell their stories. Um, you know, and, and I, I guess. You know, this is the thing I, I really need to kind of be upfront. I'm not a Pacific Islander, and and I'm not, and I'm always very conscious of that when we're when we're telling stories like this. And so, if the, if you go back to the Fiji film that we were just talking about, half of our crew was Fijian for, um, for, you know, it it just it was just so important that the, the we were as as you said the words you use as we we provide the platform, but this is not our story to tell. And so I think one of the great things about events like the Pacifica Film Festival is it really provides those young filmmakers, the people with the great ideas and the great stories. And, and you know, the Pacific, as as I think many people will will know who, who've worked in the Pacific, the Pacific exists on storytelling. It's, 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 the, it's the fundamental kind of... You know, it's the it's the pulse of the Pacific is is the is the sharing of stories and the way stories are passed down at both on, across generations, but also across across um, cultures. You know, Melanesian, Polynesian, Micronesian cultures in the Pacific. You know, they all have deep deep storytelling roots, and and it's such a powerful tool. And and I think with festivals like that, um, it just f- provides a great avenue. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm a huge film nerd myself, so I kind of love just seeing these stories from our region, um, you know, because because we're so full, I think, of those American stories that we're always fed and I think it's so wonderful to see homegrown stories from the Pacific. And, and, and I think, you know, if you look at – if I speak as an Australian, I think that um, – New Zealand. Uh, I mean, we have many. We have many things to to look to our kind of east in awe of. But I think where New Zealand has really 
embraced the Pacific identity within its within its culture far more than say we have in Australia, and and you see that in the quality of the films and the stories coming out of New Zealand at the moment um, with that real Pacific influence. It's it's really it's a really exciting time for this stuff. It is, and I, do you think films like Tanner have helped to put that on the map as well? Yeah, Tanner is such an incredible <laughs> film for for those who. Um, who haven't seen it, I just encourage you to stop listening to this and, and go. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> once it's finished, um, just just go and watch it. It is an extraordinary film. Um, yeah. You know, the team that made that film um, deserve all the praise because it's it's an amazing achievement. Um, you know, it's a Ni Vanuatu story told in um, in the language of the Yakel, um, the people from that community in Tana, um, which are you know extremely traditional, you know, but it is a very timeless story. I mean, if you if you look at it through a very kind of through a very basic lens, it, it's Romeo and Juliet, you know, on an island, really, you know, but it, it's 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 such a, an incredible document of that culture and that identity, and I, I hope that. Um, that it certainly lives on and, and builds that kind of that reverence that it deserves over the, the coming years because it's an incredible piece of work. Yeah. Oh, it is. I, I visited Tanner about a week after the premiere on the island oh, wow. and we were driving into one of the communities. I, I was doing a homestay for a week there and there was still a sheet tied between two trees <laughs> and they said, this is where we screened it. This was the, the like the world first screening of the film was on a sheet between two trees on the side of a dirt road in Tanner. Oh, Fantastic. It's just so cool. It's, it's amazing. It's, a, it's an amazing film. Yeah. Um, really I, I, a, fr- a friend of mine uh, actually did the sound um, for that film and um, his photos of, of recording uh, this, the sounds uh, are quite extraordinary. Um, uh, he, he's a, 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 an amazing sound engineer and he's worked all over the world, but, but he, he still speaks about that experience. He was, he was on, on Tanner for about two, two months recording um, and, and just, you know, he still speaks in kind of religious tones about the way he speaks of that recording. Mm. Wow, what an experience. Changing Absolutely. the subject a little bit, I want to get on to communications technology now, Um, Mm -hmm. and there's a couple of avenues we can take here, but I know that back in 2013, you worked with the World Bank to create a film called Beyond the Wire, which looked at communications technology in the Pacific and why investing in communications technology is so important. And I guess we're having this discussion in Australia at the moment around the NBN and and similar things with with lots of debates about the virtues of investing in, in communications technology and things like that, but that manifests very differently amongst our, our Pacific Island neighbours. So mm. what effect can investing in communications technology have on broader development goals? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I'm, I'll speak first of all to the, the Pacific experience because that's obviously where I've worked on this this side of things. Um, I mean, I think there is just a, a, a an amazing practical element, which is to be connected to your neighbours and your loved ones who might live in other parts of the region. I mean, it's a no-brainer. You know, the even the 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 uh, you know you can you can argue that that there is probably no more impactful um, investment in development than the simple act of being able to call so call your neighbour or your wantok who lives uh, you know a hundred kilometres away on another island who 
up until that point, you've only been able to see maybe once every two or three years or, or if that, um, who the only way of getting in touch with, it might be a letter or, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking about a time period of like 20 years ago. I'm talking about, you know, five, four years ago, you know, um, when, Parts of of the country were just completely cut off. Parts parts of the region were completely cut off. And and the example certainly that I worked on was Vanuatu. Um, you know that one of the great things of of the work that went into connecting Vanuatu and that there's there's clearly it's not been a perfect experience. But if if you look at it with a broad sense, I mean there are there are, there are parts of Vanuatu that when companies were allowed the competition was allowed into the country to improve telecommunications those companies that were allowed in had to invest in parts of the country that um were completely cut off and that that there was there was the agreement that you know they basically had to invest in those small parts of the country even though there potentially wasn't the commercial value in those investments um and the the change that that has brought to people's lives to be able to just send a simple text message. I mean, you look at Cyclone Pam um, that hit Vanuatu as a, as a really good example. Um, the the uh, early warning centre or the the disaster management centre in in Port Vila, for example, as the storm was moving in, they sent out a blast text message to the whole country saying, "Get ready, get prepared." That's that's something that you know the 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 death toll in in Vanuatu after a Category Five cyclone was, I think, it was certainly under fifteen people, which is extraordinary. Mm. Um, you know, you consider only two or three years or less than that, a typhoon of the same magnitude hit the Philippines and, and literally killed um, thousands of people. You know, we're talking about um, a simple text, a simple series of text messages that went out to say, take shelter, go to your nearest concrete house or your nearest um, church, places like that where you can take shelter. And that changed and saved hundreds of lives, you know, and that's, and that's a simple technology text message that went out. So the value of this stuff cannot be understated. Yeah, wow. That's a powerful example with, with Vanuatu and the Philippines. So investing in communications technology is therefore very important. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> that's the conclusion there. Um, so more broadly, the World Bank launched the Pacific Possible Report in September of last year, and I know that that made quite a big impact. It was a really kind of widely recognised report in the sector, and I know you played a really significant role in championing that. So can you outline what Pacific Possible was all about and um, what sort of impact do you think it has had? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting report, and and it was something that when I started working at the World Bank, I was kind of brought in to to help, um, kind of shape how it would be communicated. And um, one of the one of the things that made that report so interesting was that it was basically looking at the Pacific with a, a twenty five year future um, lens, kind of what could the Pacific look like in twenty five years, um, and and. I guess the question was where really if if you look at it with a real world banky kind of lens it was how how can countries best invest their limited resources to get the best outcomes in the, within the next 25 years mm-hmm. and so looking at issues like um so one of the key income earners in the Pacific, as, as some people know, is obviously fisheries income. So how can the Pacific collectively better get together and 
make sure that it's earning the 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 the, the best income it can from its from its tuna fishery stocks, for example, or how can um, how can the region um, better reduce uh, for example, the impact of non-communicable diseases over the next 25 years, um, which, as we, as many of many listeners will know, is is obviously um, one of the what well, it is the single biggest killer in the region is non-communicable diseases. Um, uh, you know, how can the region better manage finances? Uh, it sounds really boring, but it's very important, um, obviously. And how can countries, most importantly, I think, how can countries better work together? So that sense of regionalism to affect positive outcomes for the whole region. So on issues like tourism, aviation, for example, how can um, countries in the Pacific, which are obviously many of them are very small, you know, better manage those those sort of processes of aviation security, tourism, things like that, but, you know, making sure, you know, providing entry for cruise ships, how can that be better managed to better deliver outcomes? And um, one of the things that I really enjoyed working on this, this report series was that, we actually did um, – we basically went and filmed in uh, – I think it was 11 countries on the, on the sort of – in the capitals in every, in every country and basically just started asking people what they, what they want for their future. And it was quite extraordinary, um, the answers that we got. And it was very, for me, I think very inspiring to hear the breadth of ideas amongst young people. And, and there was a real target with those, those interviews that we did to make sure that we were interviewing young people and, and people that we, I guess, you know, that are the next generation, the, the people who in 25 years when these reports were written for are going to be the leaders of their country and or their countries rather. And, and it was extraordinary, the, the energy you get from that. You know, I, I can't, I mean, I, I I'm, I'm 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 kind of mid thirties now, so I'm sort of I'm starting. You can I can feel the cynicism starting to creep in. But when you when you go and when you go and hit the streets and you ask people about what their their dreams and their visions for their country for the future are, it, it's it's incredibly enriching. Um, I'm saying this from a very selfish point of view, but I think the the content itself that we got in the videos that that you can check out are, are kind of are very inspiring because you hear all of those you know, you just don't hear the cynicism yet. You hear the kind of the optimism and, and we just want to tap into that as much as you can. Yeah, definitely. As you were talking there, I was trying to figure out how old I'd be in 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 48. So that, that feels like quite a long time away. But yeah, it's really exciting to to ask people, what's your really, really long-term vision? Mm. Really yeah, cool. and, and, and I think... Um, when you have a, a, a sort of a window of time that's that's that uh, that's that far distance in the future, like twenty five years or quarter of a century, if you like, but that's not a hundred years away. That's completely abstract. Um, you can get some really interesting responses, and we certainly did. Mm. So that sort of is a good segue into something that we spoke about before we started recording, which is the notion of communications for development. So mm. communications for development is quite an emerging area. I've heard that phrase used quite a bit and I imagine there's sort of more and more committees emerging within organisations and that's their role. But communications for development is is basically looking at how we communicate development to the 
beneficiaries and the people affected by our programs as mm. opposed to an organization doing their usual traditional communication of what they do as a means of attracting investment and, and donations and that sort of thing. So there's two mm-hmm. very different sorts of communications there. Correct me if I've explained any of that wrong, but can you sort of explain the difficulty in managing those two different sorts of communications? Mm. Um yeah, you, you explained it perfectly, Rachel. So, so don't worry. And and I should I should be upfront in saying that I'm definitely not a communications for development specialist. Um, you know, I'm I'm still learning in this space as well. But one of the things that that people across the the sector, across aid and development, are really starting to understand is that if you don't invest in communications as part of a, an aid or development project, you are potentially um, uh, just you know, you're killing the value, or potentially really damaging the value of your your investment in in whatever that that work is. Um, you know, and and I guess you look at um, if you're building a road, and and I try and it's a this is a pretty simple simple example, but if you're building a road and and you that road is going to I don't know shift the 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 lanes I don't know 100 meters further to the to the left or to the right or to the north or the south or whatever it is, and you don't explain to the community why that investment is being made, then all sorts of things can happen. You know, the community may not trust it. They may think that this is a, uh, this is an imposed problem on them as opposed to the positive outcomes which you think are automatic. But, um, you know, if, if, for example, you're investing in an education project and, and there is a change in the curriculum to better improve literacy, um, uh, you know, and, and a community might think, well, oh, they're trying to reduce the religious education or, or something, for example, um, in our community, and I don't trust it, so I don't like it, and we'll do everything we can to stop this. So if you don't invest in explaining and, and making clear to support you, the communities that you're working with that the, the value and the, the kind of rationale behind the communications work, you're really risking the whole va- the whole communication, the whole project falling over. And, and so I think to answer your question, I think people are starting to properly wake up to this, but the challenge is really that, um, that making sure that the money in particular is, is put there for communications from the very beginning of a project. So, um, you know, if you're spending, if you're spending, uh, you know, a million dollars on a road or something, that there is a hundred thousand dollars put aside to communicate the benefits of that road. And, and, you know, if I can be really, I, I think, frank about it, I, I don't think that there is enough of that clear investment happening and, and it's and the communications is, is all too often becoming an afterthought at the sort of the 11th hour on a project and, and to the real detriment of, of planning and effectiveness. Um, but, but we're getting better and, and I think as an as a industry, as a sector, if you want to call it, call it that, I think we're getting definitely better at understanding this and there and there are um there are uh, there is acknowledgement right from the top of organizations now that communications needs to play that role Mm. and i mean i think you only have to work on one project that that's rejected by the community to know the value of doing this Absolutely. And you, yeah, it's, it's very profound. I've worked on a couple of projects where the community buy-in just wasn't where we needed it to be and you've realised very quickly that we should have invested a lot more heavily in um, in communications. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, there, there's a great example of a, of a campaign that was, you know, from all reports, extremely successful in in, in Tonga. Um, uh, Cal My Tonga is called, which is let's, uh, which translates to let's play Tonga, and and it was the, the whole point of the campaign was built around reducing non-communicable diseases and get and literally getting people off the couch and getting them playing so netball rugby and and that was a you know so crucial to the success of of the whole investment in trying to reduce um, non-communicable diseases in that country because um, you know there was a real energy you know real real and there was a real investment from the very beginning of that project um, to try and encourage people to to look at this as a real positive as opposed to the the kind of messaging around non-communicable diseases, which can be very sad and very negative. Mm. You opened your answer there by saying that you're not a communications for development person. So yeah. what, who, who is, like what would that entail? Is someone who is that, are they an anthropologist or mm. what, what sort of background would you have to, to be a communications for development person? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so I think I think someone who has an understanding of behaviour change um, and the psychology of behaviour change, I think, it, and theories of behaviour change is one of those one of those key assets. But I think um, more than that, I, I just I can't stress this enough. Someone who understands the local context, and I think as an industry, I think we need to take a good hard look at ourselves in the constant stream of kind of international consultants who are brought in to find really, um, to present really complex solutions when those solutions are probably already there and the local knowledge is there and understanding of how to best communicate locally. So um, that that's, I guess, why I, I stress that this is not my area of expertise because I know the Pacific and I've worked in, in the region for, for over 10 years and I love it. But I, I am not Fijian. I am not Tongan. I'm not. I'm not Papua New Guinean. I know those countries very well because they're deep, deep in me. But at the end of the day, um, a Papua New Guinean knows PNG better. You know, and, and even you can break that prevent, down provincially in, in a country as big as PNG, for example. But you know, you rely on on your, the knowledge of those who know their countries. And I guess that loops back to the point that we both made earlier that. We just need to create platforms for people to tell their own stories and how can Absolutely. we empower people to, to communicate themselves? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, sort of changing tack a tad there, um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about impact investment. I know this isn't an area that you specifically work in, but mm-hmm. a big part of impact investment rests on storytelling and how well you can communicate an impact narrative. So mm. the reason uh, I, I really like working in impact investment because there is a huge funding shortfall between what's required to achieve the sustainable development mm. goals and what donors are actually willing to commit. There's a yep. shortfall there of upwards of $2 trillion. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, where's that money going to come from? <laughs> and yeah. the reason I feel really passionate about the private sector is that ultimately that money is going to come from private sector investment. But in order for us to mobilize that sort of investment, we need to be able to communicate impact really well. Absolutely. So, how do we do it? (laughs) 
That's <laughs> a really good question. If I if I knew the answer to that question, maybe I um I would be <laughs> would be a millionaire, but I'm not. Um, and I and I don't have the answer. But I think I think what I what I would say to that is um, demonstrate outcomes. And and I think I at the heart of my my job, I like to consider um, myself as a kind of as a person who tells human stories and human stories are incredibly effective in communicating the value of numbers and the value and the impact of numbers. But if you don't, if, if those human stories aren't, aren't balanced with, like you say, impact and, and to want to, for want of a better word, the profit, if you like, from a project, mm. um, you know, then I think you you're tugging at the emotional heartstrings, but you're not tugging at the wallet or the the um, I think the 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 bottom line. Or um, and so and so I think it's about finding that balance and uh, and also I think understanding your audience and how they think. You know, I come back to the way the the project that I was talking about. Um, at the start about the Fiji VR film that we made, um, that was deliberately very targeted to senior decision makers at, you know, within that kind of political UN kind of group who know about climate change. So I'm not, I'm not, we're not educating them on, you know, you know, why, what carbon emissions are doing to the, to the ozone layer. We're, we're, we're talking to a group that they get it and they've connected, but they understand, they need to understand the value and the importance of that investment. And so, and, and I hope that I, we connected with them. I certainly think we did. Um, you know, but I think to answer your, your most recent question, I think it's about finding that balance that's going to connect on an, both an emotional, but but also on a on a really practical numbers basis with those the, the private sector and and um, you know that's a that's a very easy thing to say and to present in theory, but of course to execute and to to achieve that is is you know and to achieve what what was the number you said a tr- two trillion dollars yeah in, two trillion or more. <laughs> yeah crazy. is is unfathomable really, mm. but I, I think um, we can only do our best, and I think if we at least find that balance between the emotional and the the practical, hopefully that that helps to achieve that. I think you've articulated that really well. And you said there, the the profit, we need to communicate the profit. And I think there's a methodology um, that's emerging now, social return on investment. I don't know if you've Mm, heard of that. Um, But yeah, basically it's exactly that. If you invest $1 in this project, the social return is $8. Um, mm. And that's that's a compelling narrative. Absolutely, I think it's really compelling. But it's about just you know uh, making that more mainstream and upskilling enough of us to know how to actually do that methodology um, and communicate it. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think I think a, a good example of that when I from my days at Care and and um, Care International obviously has a has a big focus on on women and girls. And I think the the statistic that was all, was regularly rolled out was that. For every year a woman stay or a girl stays in school, um, she's uh, the the return to her family and to, to from any, from the income that she can prospectively earn is is doubles every every two years I think, you know and and I I, th- I think that's right but um, I'm trying right. to remember remember yeah. back to my my talking <laughs> points from those days but yeah. um, but I. I you know that, that those numbers, you know, just makes business sense. Like, mm. um, you know, if you're if you're a if you're a government that that 
wants to invest in in the value of of education and educating girls, for example, that that makes sense for the economy of your country. It does. Yeah, 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 definitely. There's a question that I like to finish on in each of our interviews. Uh, So I'm I'm going to ask you that one now. Um, Success for you, what does success for you in your current role look like in 10 years' time? Interesting question. Um, I think... Uh, a, a very, I have a very simple answer, and that I've told stories that um, have people have connected with and have resulted in action, so like an impact. But most importantly, I think that have um, represented the communities that those stories are being told, um, both uh, are told about, both accurately and with dignity. I think that is probably if I, if I've achieved that then I've then that's my success. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much Tom. This has been so enlightening and and I'm I'm really grateful that um that you do the work that you do and I think that the World Bank communications are in good hands. Thank you. Thanks <laughs> with, very much. You in touch. Uh, so thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Absolute pleasure, Rachel. Thanks for having me. 